This is how we overcome it. Moving on, keep it done. Reaching to the world. Arms open, arms open, yeah. This is how we practice. Well, welcome back to Crazy Faith Talk. I'm Erica. I'm Sarah. And I'm Steve. Welcome back, friends, to a fairly new-ish series. This is episode three of a new series that we are calling The Mandela Effect. You know, those characters that we think usually collectively as a society or as a community are in the Bible, but they're really not, or at least not in the way we remember. Um, This often happens because of other influences outside of the Bible, such as TV shows or myths or legends or what have you, that we've all kind of just collectively made a very small character either grow in in importance or just radically changed how this character was or just kind of created a brand new character that's not really in the Bible at all. So who are we going to talk about today? Well, um, after um, some... uh some pretty well-known obvious examples where we started like the innkeeper in the Bethlehem story and the angel of death who turns out not to exist at all. <laughs> um, we're going to take a look at a figure that everybody is sure is in the Bible and kind of is, but kind of isn't. Um, the figure we call Satan um, or the devil. And I know this is going to at first go like, wait a second, there's lots of verses that talk about the devil. There's lots of verses that talk about Satan. How can it not be there? Well, kind of and also kind of not. Um, and here's here's maybe what what I mean and flesh this out with me a little bit in case I'm missing some details. But for most folks in, I say broadly Western culture, especially in American culture, when you talk about the devil, there is this instant picture, often a uh, red guy in a jumpsuit with horns and a pitchfork um, <laughs> who shows up in our mind and that that's this uh, embodiment of evil and often seen as like God's opposite and co-equal with God, but in the like the dark side and the light side of the force. Like in pop culture, God and the devil are equal and opposite. And then in wider Western culture, there's a whole backstory that the devil, where did he come from? Uh, well, the devil uh, in pop culture is a fallen angel who used to be good and then turned evil because he wanted to aspire to God's power and God's authority and like the famous line of Milton's from Paradise Lost, decided in the end it's better to reign in hell than to serve in heaven. And that sort of becomes the collective backstory for this figure that the Old Testament or Hebrew scriptures call Satan, that in the New Testament is sometimes called Diabolos or devil. Uh, and in pop culture gets also equated with the name Lucifer. Turns out those are three separate categories kind of. And in Western culture, we've kind of glommed them all together and made one supervillain out of the Bible. Is that a fair broad brushstroke picture? Yeah. Yeah. And I think that that like, especially that duality of this is a character that is equal against God is something that we kind of all almost relate to because a lot of us, you know, in our struggle of sin, you know, as St. Paul wrote, I do the evil that I do not want to do. And I don't do the thing like that I should do or whatever. Um, you know, we, we find ourselves like tempted continually into sin. And in a lot of ways, it's kind of easy to go, oh, yes, that's because like there are evil forces at work conspiring against me and against God. And it also gives us an easy out of like, oh, this evil thing happened. Who's behind it? Oh, it's this it's it's the devil it's satan right. tempting me into it and it's kind of helps explain at least to a lot of us 
why all that is. And so if God is this powerful force in our universe, then this thing that keeps doing evil should also be a powerful thing in the universe. And if they're continually at battle, God and evil, then it makes sense that if it's an actual battle that they are, that they're always fighting, then of course they're going to be equal. Um, But that's not really how the Bible presents (laughs) it. Like, The Bible is pretty clear again and again and again that God is the most powerful. God is the powerful, like, and also that God has already won and is like, yeah. So it's not this like equal thing that I think that a lot of us either think or even would maybe like it to be. I think you may have touched on something there that uh, I had not even thought about that at least in the last 40 or 50 years of pop culture, I think we almost read um, Star Wars uh, backstory mythology into the our, our biblical <laughs> thinking, um, where there's two equal opposite forces that no neither one ever wins. They're always the language in Star Wars is always who will bring balance to the force, right? So it's never the, the you know the the battle mm-hmm. is over and good finally wins, but like we're sort of like stuck with this in our in our pop culture. Oh, there's this unending struggle between good and evil. And maybe because we're used to thinking about so many other things in rigid binaries and dualities, there's protons with a positive charge and electrons with a negative charge, matter and antimatter, all that kind of stuff. We tend to think, oh, that must be how God is and that God's opposite is equally powerful, equally strong, equally eternal, that kind of thing. And we need to attach a name to that because we we attach a name to God and we end up with, oh, well, that must be what the devil is. Um, and we should maybe sort of unpack that, again, while there are definitely places in the Bible that use the title Satan or even use the New Testament term the devil or Diabolos, um, so it's not like this is an entirely made-up name or idea. What people tend to picture when they see that name is kind of different as the Bible describes it compared to what pop culture does. And maybe this is a place to talk about it, a difference between when we talk about the innkeeper, if you read the text, there's literally no character named an innkeeper. We even said there's not really an inn. But yeah, there's definitely somebody named Satan in the Hebrew scriptures. What does that mean? I'm going to push back against that. Okay. In the Old Testament, I don't think Satan ever appears as a proper name. I don't think it's ever a proper name either. And that's right. a good place it's, to start. So, it's more of it's more of a title. It's yeah, the Satan. The Satan. So let, let's start there because the word Satan may show up. And in English translations, even contemporary current translations, like say in the book of Job, you'll get the opening prologue of that story. It's like a uh, almost a bet between Yahweh God and the Satan. But most of our English translations don't put the in front, which suggests, like you say, a title or an office or a role but treat it like it's a proper name, like Phil or Fred or Susan. So could you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah. So in the, in the Hebrew, um, Satan, the Satan is, uh, it's a title. It's not a proper noun. Um, and it's, it's a role it's adversary. It's, um, someone who obstructs or objects or acts as an adversary. And I think that the book of Job is a great example of this Mm -hmm. because like there's this heavenly court and God is kind of like talking up one of his favorite people that's currently living and that's Job and how great he is. Look how awesome this guy is. And an obedient person, an obedient being on the heavenly court is all like, hey, 
he's he's so great and righteous and faithful because you've given him everything like what would happen if you took everything away and so god's all like all right i'll take that bet do it take everything away and so the satan the adversary takes everything away from job and but he's not undermining god at all he's acting super Mm -hmm. obedient he's doing everything that god asks him to um and yeah, it's that's a role that that being ha- is playing in the heavenly court. And like he's not being an adversary, I would say to God, right. but rather to Job. Right. And this is maybe a helpful way to talk about it, that we're we're used to going, oh, Satan means adversary must be God's adversary, but really the in that the original Hebrew context it's more like a DA in the the criminal justice system. I'm not going to get all law and order opening monologue on us, but like for the generation that grew up on law and order, it's helpful to know part of our justice system is there's somebody's job who is to prosecute people for charges of crime. And at the end of a trial, you find out, was the prosecutor correct? Was enough evidence brought that the person was a crook or stole the money or robbed the bank or whatever? Um, and the, the that's somebody's job. It may not be a fun job to have to be the prosecuting attorney and always, um, you know, accusing people of criminal conduct. But in a in a world where you care about justice, you want to make sure that people don't get away with terrible crimes and misdemeanors. So uh, a DA's job or a prosecutor's job is important. And yeah, they will feel like your adversary as opposed to your advocate. Uh, if you're the person who's accused and your attorney is your advocate, you're not going to feel very warm and fuzzy. But if their job is to pursue justice, um, that that's an important necessary role. So in the book of Job, that's exactly what this Satan figure does, huh? Yep. And there are a couple other times, maybe not many, but a couple of times in the Hebrew scriptures where there's that image of God holding sort of a, a council among the other, I don't I'm gonna say divine beings, but sometimes it sort of translates just, you know, the angels or the heavenly host. Um, in Hebrew, sometimes it's generically, you know, the Elohim, you know, all, all them, you know, heavenly figures that are alongside God. Um, and without fleshing that out real in, in answering our question, who are these other heavenly beings? Who's in this divine council? There are sometimes those moments where it's almost like a curtain is pulled back and you see God holding court among these other lesser beings, angels or what have you. And that the job of the accuser is to be God's prosecuting attorney, that kind of role. So not an adversary to God, but an adversary of wrongdoers or injustice or something like that. Is, is it fair to say, at least broadly, when any time in the Hebrew scriptures we see the word Satan, for however few that, that shows up, that's really what's going on is that it's always a title, the Satan, the accuser. And in the Hebrew scriptures, at least, it's not being used as a proper title. Is that right? It's my yeah. understanding. And I was reminded of a quote um, by Neil Forsyth um, that he says, if the path is bad, the obstruction is good. Mm. And so I think that there's even one example with uh, Balaam and his donkey where yeah. the adversary, the obstruction that they are faced, the Satan that appears is actually one that ultimately helps Balaam because Balaam needed to be stopped in his journey mm-hmm. and he needed to be turned away. And the donkey was listening and saw the angel, the right. Satan, and 
kept turning around and Balaam kept getting angry and then striking the donkey until eventually he struck the donkey dead dead. And that is when the Satan appeared, the angel of God to say, why did you do this? Your donkey was smarter than you and did what he needed. He was supposed to do. Why did you kill him? Like you weren't supposed to go down this path. Um, And so like, we even get examples of that where the Satan in the old Testament is actually acting good on behalf of God. And in a, in a, in a role of serving God's purposes and not malevolent purposes, but for ultimate justice or things to be put right. Almost like, I was having a conversation with people a couple of weeks ago about the role of the great fish in the story of Jonah and how like in the children's version of that story, like in my memory, the lesson of the book of Jonah was don't disobey God or a fish will eat you. And like it was sort of like the the fish was punishment. Whereas like in reality, in that part of the story, there's Jonah being thrown overboard. He'll drown either unless he comes to land or something preserves his life until he can get to land. And so the great beast that swallows him is both kind of a holy timeout. You need to think about your action, Jonah, but also what spares him so that then he can start over again and he eventually does go to Nineveh. That is the whale a villain in the story? Nope, I'm not sure whales can be villains. Not even in Moby Dick. Um, but really, it's sort of that awareness uh, that creature both saves his life and, yeah, maybe creates a timeout for him. But the, the, the Satan's role is that kind of serving God's purposes and is always on God's leash, maybe. There's never a point in the Hebrew scriptures of a sense that uh, the Satan is ever off the leash and has no uh, boundaries or, or or no limits on what that figure can do. Is that fair to say, too? Yes. Now, that said, every time I've had this conversation about what the Satan figure looks like in the Bible, often people will say, but wait a second, aren't there places in the Bible that talk about a fallen angel who turns evil um, and, you know, they will attach the name Lucifer to that and go, you know, that's what I'm talking about. The devil, Satan, Lucifer, all as though these are the same thing. What's going on there? So Lucifer is, in fact, a character from mythology, right? Lucifer Mm -hmm. meaning light bringer in Latin. Um, Mm -hmm. I think I've heard Lucifer translated in the sense of like with with the Bible to mean morning star, which is a very similar, you know, light bringing, light bringer, morning star. Um, But but this is actually a character from Roman mythology, Right. It's um, also the, another name for the planet Venus. Right. So this is one of those mm-hmm. moments where an actual object that different languages have words for uh, in one language gets translated. The literal phrase light bearer, light bringer in Latin is Lucifer. And again, becomes a proper name when it wasn't originally meant to be uh, a proper name. So like we gave names to stars as well. We would give names to constellations, right? There's the Big Dipper. And other ones might say, no, that's the Big Bear. That's Ursa Major. We give all these names. And in our time, we know that we don't mean that there's a literal Big Bear in the sky. We also know that the stars don't obey our names for them. Our one culture has a name and another culture has another name for them. But that um, we saw like 500 years from now, somebody read our astronomy charts, they might say, oh, those four 21st century Americans, they thought there were little bears in the sky. And they might thought that they might think that we have uh, a mythology in imagining little bears fighting, I don't know, Dippers or Orion or something in the sky. No, it's just we're connecting the dots and making change. Um, so in the ancient world, in a lot of different cultures, the 
planet, what we call the planet Venus, it, what, nobody knew that was a planet orbiting the sun. They thought it was a star, and it's a star that always appears, you know, right at dusk or right at dawn. It's the one that's visible there and becomes sort of a symbol. Oh, when you see that, you know dawn is coming. That's the light bringer. Um, and eventually that gets personified in different cultures as that's uh, associated with a being or a deity in, in not just uh, Roman and Greek mythologies, but in Canaanite mythologies that would have been people surrounding ancient Israel. They have myths about a, a heavenly being that wants to be the most high and uh, decides instead to descend to the underworld to rule there instead. The, those stories and, and motifs are floating around in the ancient world, but that's not brought into the text of the Hebrew scriptures. Those things are floating around on the outside, and it seems like maybe that's influenced our reading of what's going on in the Bible. Yeah, and I would... I think that there we do kind of see a shift between the Old Testament and the New Testament as to like whether this uh, the evil one, the adversary becomes per personified. Mm -hmm. And I think a huge part of that, it, and especially like when we start thinking of Lucifer as a person, is because around the first century when Jesus was alive, Rome did have a huge influence on Israel, right? Like they were mm -hmm. occupied by sure. Rome. And so yeah. it makes sense that they would be hearing some of these myths from Rome and, you know, even subconsciously starting to kind of um, like make connections. Sure. Like um, the book, the prophet Isaiah, uh, there's a line in there about shining one sun of the morning probably in reference again to Venus in the sky. Um, so like there, there are like these like little connections of like, oh, here is this, this light in the sky and we have one name for it. These people have another name for it, but it's the same light. And this culture also has a myth around that light. And like, let's share that story. I'm glad you mentioned that because you're right. There are two, two plays in particular where uh passages in the prophets there's one in isaiah and one in ezekiel that are often used or have been used in later christian i'll say theology generously <laughs> um as ways to talk about the the devil when if you read in context the authors are talking about pagan kings and it's real clear that they're talking about pagan kings so in isaiah 14 for example the beginning of the oracle god says i want you to start taunting the king of babylon right so the you know babylonians are this oppressive empire that is uh the bully on the world scene in that time period and uh you know claim to have power they eventually will take judah into exile and uh the prophet isaiah rails on this problem mocking him like making fun of him in a satire and makes fun of him saying you thought you were all that you thought you were so great just you're falling down you're brought low and uses that image you thought you were like the morning star and you've fallen down to the lowest so if all you had was that one verse about somebody who is the morning star who falls down oh that's fallen angel man no that's literally it's, it's like a political taunt it's saying hey you bullies in the foreign empire you think you've got all the power no god does mm -hmm. And exposing the pretender kings as uh you know pretenders and similarly when you get to the book of ezekiel in ezekiel 28 i want to say there's another passage that sounds like if you don't read it in context oh this must be a devil origin story because there's somebody who says i will ascend to the highest throne and take my place among the gods and and ends up being defeated and thrown down if you read the beginning of that passage 
Ezekiel says, now I'm going to mock the king of Tyre, a literal foreign king. And again, if you read it in its immediate context, it's real clear. Ezekiel is not like waxing philosophical about spiritual beings. He's taken shots at the enemies of God who set themselves up against God and, and against the powers of empire of the day. Um, but if you don't read things in context, you'll take a couple of snippets out of that and go, oh, this must be heavenly backstory about where the devil came from when the Bible is, is honestly, frustratingly not interested in giving us an origin story other than, you know, God's got a prosecuting attorney. Which is such a shame because we do love us a good backstory origin story. Yeah, and and I get it in this era of TV show and movie cinematic universes where after a character has become popular, somebody says, I want to know how they became that person, right? That's for anybody who lived through the Star Wars prequel era, I want to find out how Darth Vader became Darth Vader. All want to know those kind of questions. Although, honestly, when we're given those answers, we're always pretty disappointed. Um, but to read Isaiah and Ezekiel, um, those are not about explaining the origin of a, of a mythic evil figure, but they're literally taunting the empires of the day and saying, you're setting yourself up against God and God won't have it. So what do we do, though, then with the New Testament? And it's not the term Lucifer. Right. But it's Satan. Mm -hmm. When Jesus says, I saw Satan fall like lightning in, in the Gospel question. of Luke. Let, so let's talk about that context, because you're right. In While maybe the Hebrew Bible, it sounds like we've maybe uh, myth-busted a couple of those places. But yeah, Jesus will say things like, uh, I saw Satan fall from heaven or something like that. So maybe we should talk a little bit mm -hmm. about context, right? If if I'm remembering right, correct me if I'm wrong, uh, in Luke's gospel, uh, Jesus has sent out his disciples. He, he sends at one point 12 out and 24 out, then eventually 70 or 72 people out. Mm -hmm. And they do the things he's equipped them and trained them to do. They bring good news. Mm -hmm. They heal the sick. They cast out evil spirits. And they come back all excited saying, Jesus, when we did what you taught us to do, powers of evil they they actually responded we were able to cast out evil spirits and we cured people and we brought good news and we helped people and then jesus response is out of the blue i saw satan fall from heaven right so yep. i guess a question i'd put to you it seems like there's two possible ways of reading that one is jesus as a complete non sequitur not interested in what they have to say says oh on a completely <laughs> unrelated subject in eternity past, I saw Satan fall. He was a fallen angel, and now I'm going to tell you about it, apropos of nothing. Or when they say the powers of evil respond, you know, they they were defeated by us, is this Jesus' response going, yeah, as I saw you doing all that stuff, it was like seeing the powers of evil shake into their core. To me, that seems exactly what he's talking about, that it's not an ancient, eternal mm -hmm. past event that means nothing to the present subject. But he's saying, in response to what they just said, yeah, as you were fighting evil and as you were casting on evil spirits and curing people, it was like seeing the, the powers of evil crumble, like seeing Satan cast out of heaven. It, and maybe we should also say it seems like in the New Testament, both in the Gospels and sometimes in the later epistles like Ephesians, Colossians, there's the imagery of wherever the evil powers live. It's not underground like some mythologies do, but it's up in the air. And the, there's the language of the prince of the power of the air. So instead of imagining that only God is up in heaven and like the devil has to live in the underworld or something like that, there's some ancient mythology that pictures these as celestial conflicts or something. So to say Satan falling from heaven might not be he was a fallen angel leaving heaven, but he was in his realm and fell out of power in his evil realm or something like that. So again, we have a way of hearing it as, 
oh, Jesus talking about the origin story of the devil, when maybe it's more I'm describing the defeat of evil from the one stronghold they thought it had. And as, as you look at Luke, that's in uh, chapter 10, verse 18. But it, as Jesus continues, he says, I've given you authority to trample on snakes and scorpions to overcome all the power of the enemy. Nothing will harm you. However, do not rejoice the spirit submit to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Right. So again, yeah, you know, it's saying, yeah, this is going to happen. Like, yes, these evil powers are going to fall by your authority because you have my authority. Right. But don't be shocked about that. That's not a, all of this is already, in some ways, yes, it's already happened. Right. But like, this is continuing to happen and will continue to happen. Right. And yeah, I knew that was going to happen. Right. Now, it's also fair to say there are moments, especially in the Gospels, where you get the assumed presence of a personified evil, like the tempter in the wilderness, where at least mm -hmm. uh, the, the gospel writers like Matthew and Mark and Luke treat a figure they refer to as the Diabolos, uh, which sometimes is translated devil, um, and treat that figure as almost equivalent to Satan. Even there, though, there's some of that old-fashioned role of being the accuser, right? That, like, sure. mm -hmm. the question is, will Jesus be what God intends Jesus to be? Will Jesus be the faithful Messiah, or is it going to turn out he's got flaws, or he's going to, you know, uh, crumble? Um, and so, again, it, it's less about um, uh, an evil supervillain, almost, as more as, like, this is to, to test out, almost like the refiner's fire. Is Jesus really going to, will he be faithful uh, where ancient Israel kept blowing it or whether, you know, where all the, the uh, heroes or would-be saviors of the past messed up, will Jesus finally be the one who carries out God's mission? So then, does that make the serpent from Genesis 2 the same kind of accuser that we've talked about with Job and with the temptation in the desert? And yeah, that's I would almost say so. Because, again, the, the serpent who isn't ever called anything but the serpent is very much tells the truth, no. right? Like is like, this is the forbidden fruit that God has told you not to eat, but it's because God doesn't want you to blah, blah, blah. Right. Like yeah, the serpent is telling the truth in the temptation and Adam and Eve listen to the serpent and does as the serpent says which is eats it to to find out like is mm -hmm. he telling the truth and he is <laughs> and that's it, like and but that was the bad thing because god didn't want them to eat the fruit right but i guess it's the an interesting didn't lie it's interesting to me too that even though there are certainly reasons to associate the certain the serpent figure and the satan or devil figure Genesis never does that. Genesis right. only gives us this cryptic introduction. Now the serpent was the craftiest of all the creatures that God <laughs> made, right? So again, like if we're looking for um, uh, an evil villain origin story, the, the book of Genesis doesn't give us one. It instead says the serpent is someone God made and doesn't say anything about and God made a mistake or God made him to be evil. Just And it's mm -hmm. even the word evil doesn't show up. It's sometimes translated shrewd or craftier or, or even clever or that kind of thing. Um, and so it, it 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 doesn't really feel like this is a, a devil origin story either. And it's probably helpful to note that in modern day Judaism and for most of rabbinic Judaism, I think it's fair to say, 
they don't read the Genesis two and three story as a story about the devil. Uh, they'll talk about Satan showing up in Job and well, what do we do with that? But there is like zero um, thought of the serpent figure being a fallen angel or something like that in modern rabbinic Judaism. And every so often it's worth it for Christians, even though we can acknowledge differences between our tradition and Judaism, it's at least worth going. Other people who've been wrestling with this text for 3000 years, maybe we should listen to how they understand it rather than imposing our own assumptions on it. Right. Because like, again, I, I like to really cling to the fact that the serpent didn't lie, because mm -hmm. I think that that's important to remember, um, as well as the serpent was created by God. But unlike Job and in other places where the that adversary is obedient to God, the serpent is acting independently in this story mm -hmm. is um, because like he he too is punished right. just yeah. like Adam and Eve right. are. And so to me, that says that even though we don't get to hear God command the serpent to do anything, right? he's still punished for what he right. did in the story. And I, I again, I think this is an important note then. While we may be quick to go, oh, serpent equals Satan. No, because in the Hebrew scriptures, in the Old Testament, Satan always is this figure who only operates within the leash God grants, whereas the serpent is almost the, sort of this chaos agent. Like, I, I'm going to go pop culture again, like the Joker in the Dark Knight movie, right? Whose job is just to cause trouble, uh, who doesn't want anything rational, but just wants to see the world burn. Um, and again, like you point out, doesn't doesn't really lie, but sort of sets people up to fail or sets people up almost pushing mm -hmm. them, which is, you know, again, sort of that's an, a really interesting motif to explore. And it's classically what the Joker does in the Batman stories, too. But that's different than, yeah, the the, the Satan role that, that we've talked about earlier. We should probably also but, oh, go ahead. I would say it does set us up like. Because part of that punishment for the serpent was that he is now set up as the enemy of humans. Yeah. Right. That he would continually mm -hmm. be striking at their heels and they would be continually trying to like stomp on his head or whatever. Right. And so it makes sense then when we go back to uh, Erica's reference in Luke, where Jesus is saying the things about the enemies and includes serpents in that. Right. Sure. It's because I think when we when we think of enemies as uh it includes serpents like sure. it is a nice tie-in even if the serpent does not equal the devil or satan sure. sure sure we should probably also note that the gospels in particular and i the book of acts as well seems to assume a world and a cosmos where there are evil or unclean spirits out there and they don't give an origin to them they just sort of assume yeah they're out there but the Gospels don't give us, and here's where they all came from, um, but just, yeah, they're there. So Jesus is out there casting out evil spirits left and right, um, and as much as we might want Mark or Matthew to say, now let me tell you about where these demons come from, doesn't, um, and even the word unclean spirit is a little bit different than demons like we might picture again in modern mythology that kind of look like gargoyles, you know, like we sort of have this stock imagery in our culture about what these beings look like. And in the gospel stories, they're never visible, tangible things. They, you know, almost like possessing spirits, you know, uh, speak through a person when they're possessing them. But even without any real clarity of where they come from, how they get there, just they're out there. 
So if we're looking for the Bible to give us a definitive origin story of where those things come from, we are we are going to be disappointed. If we're willing to let the Bible start with, yep, here's a world where there's stuff beyond our ability to explain. I'm just going to throw them at you and fill in, you know, you and be okay with the ambiguity. That's sort of where the Bible is. Maybe we could also say that the New Testament has another interesting way of talking about the powers of evil. And absolutely, the New Testament, uh, especially the epistles, the letters, do talk about the powers of evil that are out there. They don't deny or sense everything's great in the universe. There's this mm -hmm. presence of systemic evil. But even there, it's not everything is reducible to a guy with a pitchfork and a red jumpsuit. But they'll often use this more systemic, quasi-personal, quasi-impersonal language of the powers that are out there, the powers and the principalities and those things that are out there in the world that are more than the sum of their parts uh, and are more than just individual people's bad actions, but somehow uh, humans in, in larger systems, something takes a, a power over us that's bigger than ourselves. And the New Testament does have that kind of language for evil that's out there. In, in a sense, to me, it feels like that's a really helpful way of making sense of the empire that uh, certainly the, the New Testament is written in the shadow of the Roman Empire. But for that matter, the pattern of empire building that's throughout the biblical witness, you know, before Rome is Greece, before them, it's the Babylonians and the Assyrians and the Medes and the Persians. And it's like over and over and over again, individual people who might be fine people end up getting in these systems where something bigger than ourselves causes us to do terrible evil. Uh, and it feels to me like our history and the 20th century certainly reveals we haven't stopped doing that. We keep doing it. And we need a way to talk about how mm -hmm. people who might be pleasant, nice people on their own uh, become participants in systemic and diabolical evil. I guess an example that... Well, I mean, like, it may, and maybe because this is kind of vague, let me, like, let me, let me kick this around with you. Like, I think a helpful way to make sense of that maybe is like the example of the Holocaust in the Third Reich in in the 30s and 40s in Germany and in Europe, where mm -hmm. people who who would have uh, sworn their neighbors are nice, pleasant, polite people and could be nice and polite to a certain subset of people. We're also capable of turning on the gas chambers and turning in their neighbors and responsible for horrific murders um, of millions of people. And that's that's more than pinning it on any one person. Something terrible and systemic happened. Um, and you can't even just put all the blame at an Adolf Hitler because lots of other people had to be a part of that death machine. A lot of people had to go, yeah, let's do that. And we need a way to talk about evil that's more than just the sum of its individual parts or individual bad actors. And it's almost like the, the biblical language of possession by evil is that's the, the most helpful way of talking about it, that there's something systemic and bigger than just me and my bad intentions, but that we get swept in something beyond our awareness, beyond even our, our control or our willingness. Yeah, and I think, though, for me, the recognizing that evil exists in this world. Mm hmm but I feel like trying to personify it in the character of Satan or the devil lessens the, being able to talk about the very real evil that is happening in the world. Because then we could blame it on right. this, this yeah. person instead of taking a look at how we participate in the evil. 
like it lets us as humans as a society off the hook in a way that i think is unhelpful in trying to figure out how to stop doing the systemic Mm -hmm. sin in the world like you know because then it becomes a oh this is a god problem only god can stop the devil instead of going "Mm, nope maybe if i stop moving in the machine maybe the machine will slow down for uh, for other people to realize what is also happening like sure do do you know what i'm trying to say yeah i do and i guess i think i think it's possible to find uh a, a pathway between some extremes and maybe this is for me like there's this is one of those there's a ditch on either side of the road here and i would be really cautious about around every corner everything is caused by a supernatural demon i stubbed my toe that was a demon i got sick with a cold that was a demon that kind of thing um and like you say it becomes real easy to slough off blame onto an imaginary boogeyman rather than no i bear culpability for the things i'm a part of even systemic things that I don't know how to separate myself from. Yeah, I think that's important. The flip side of that to me is um, it seems to me like the the scriptures take evil so seriously, they realize sort of like that passage you were mentioning earlier, Paul's from Romans, that it's bigger than just I need new habits to break my old bad habits, that evil Mm -hmm. is more than just I made some bad choices, but it's something we get captive to. Our, our the 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 classic Lutheran language in our confession language is about being captive in sin and on our own. We can't free ourselves from it. That's more than just I have a bad habit, but if I work real hard, I can free myself from it. But that we not only consciously keep throwing ourselves back into captivity to evil, but it's like we start out stuck in a system that's like that, and we don't know how to break free from it. Um, and without drawing a whole lot of my theology from David Fincher movies. Uh, it, um, there's this great line from, I think it's David Fincher, from um, uh, The Usual Suspects, uh, where um, Kevin Spacey's character says the greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world he didn't exist. Um, and that line is really haunting to me. Like, it is super easy mm-hmm. to imagine, um, well, we've got it all figured out, we've dissected, and evil is completely reducible down to brain chemistry. Evil is completely reducible down to bad habits. And I guess I want to allow wiggle room of things that are beyond my capacity to understand. Just kind of like in physics, it seems like we're constantly learning. Just when you think we got our model of the universe worked out, the scientist comes along and goes, turns out there's 11 dimensions. Or it turns out there's a thing called dark matter. Or it turns, and, and to go, there's a lot we don't know yet. I'm willing to allow the universe is more complicated and mysterious even in a realm of beings that I can't understand or don't perceive by my usual abilities. Um, so rather than saying there can't, there definitely can't be angels and demons, I'm more comfortable saying I don't get to decide what is or isn't attributable to a demon or an angel or something like that, and that it's really limited usefulness when that language is helpful. There's a lot of ways it can be really dangerous. I guess, I guess that's, that's where I tend to land, but I, I'm, I'm interested in, do you think there's ever ways that it's helpful, Sarah, to talk in that kind of personified language, or is it never helpful? What do you think? I don't know. Like, I don't find it very helpful to personify the devil or Satan Mm -hmm. as a single character person. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't personally know what to do with demons. Mm 
-hmm. Like that is something that I am quite comfortable of not knowing whether or not demons exist until I am in heaven and able to like (laughs) stand before God and go real or not real. Like are demons just like how people understood mental illness and other things like I'm okay with not knowing that until Mm -hmm. I'm dead, because I think that the only way I would be able to find out is by seeing one. And then (laughs) I would also, though, be second guessing myself of like, did I just go crazy? Did I just have a psychotic break? Um, I don't know. Um, So I'm okay with not knowing that. Yeah. Um, I think that's helpful, too, because we come from a tradition with Lutherans. Martin Luther is super duper comfortable talking about the devil all the time, you know, and that he mm-hmm. was convinced his work in launching the Protestant Reformation was a full on onslaught against the powers of evil. And the and he's willing to talk. I mean, there's even that language, mythical language about Luther throwing ink at the devil. Right. Um, <laughs> so clearly that's in his wheelhouse. And it's worth, I think, saying there is room to be able to say well, you can be at a, com- a bunch of different places on how how personified you want to talk about those things. Um I think it's probably also worth exploring, and maybe this is a whole separate conversation for another time, that even what we think we mean by personhood might need to be stretched a little bit, because Christians believe in a God who is personal and yet is also three persons in one being, and that stretches our language of personhood awfully far. So is it possible to talk about other realities being personal entities and yet not like, you know, villains in in jumpsuits with pitchforks probably that's true too what exactly does that mean or look like uh, i don't know and it, again for me and I, I it feels like maybe every time we get together i must be re- required to make a reference to american gods <laughs> um but the the way that that book imagines things like technology taking on a personality of their own like the writer neil gaiman is not trying to say that there is literally an evil spirit called technology but there is a way that those entities almost take on a personhood or a something beyond just their inner parts that's helpful for me. That's so close to the way the biblical writers talk about those spirits and evil beings out there in the world that I'm I'm almost more comfortable going, yeah, it's kind of like an American God where technology has this personal presence without saying that there's literally somewhere in the universe a you know, a realm that the evil spirit of technology lives, but that kind of language and that we treat those things like they are personal beings. And sometimes the way we treat them almost makes them become that. How's this hitting you, Erica? So, yeah, I I think I'm a little different than you all um, in the fact that I'm leery to personify evil and Satan Mm -hmm. and all that, like, you know, that we agree upon, but I do fully believe that the demonic is alive and well and working in the world today um, sure and i'd, I'd subscribe so, to that too <laughs> and i'm I not just, yeah i'm not saying that you you guys don't yeah. it's just I, I i think i see it being i'm leery to personalize it but i think i'm a little bit more willing to do so mm-hmm. maybe then from what you all are describing sure um and that just comes from kind of some of my training, some of my education right. I had in seminary and my own personal experiences that are kind of, they're hard to explain Yeah, yeah. Um, when you haven't had those experiences. I'm not yeah. saying I've ever done an exorcism or anything. Like I haven't met a demon face to face and that kind of, um, but I do believe I face spiritual warfare. And, and in that sense, you know, I've come yeah. up against the evil powers of the world. Um, but like you, I'm not saying that, you know, technology is right, right, know, right, an evil power or something. Um, 
so yeah, it, it's it's just yeah. I don't know. It, it's it's kind of the circles I run in tend yeah. to personify a little bit more, um, but I'm very much against the devil made me do it kind of thing. Right. Right. And there's a devil behind every bush, like not like you said, Steve. Right. Not every bad thing that happens right. is caused by evil. It's sometimes things just happen. Yeah, and I guess I think that for me, it's it's more the the dangers of abusing that kind of thinking and turning it into magical yeah. thinking are are such a concern for me that I'm I'm okay living with a certain amount of agnosticism. Of it may turn out there's a lot of personal beings behind lots of rotten evil stuff that goes on in the world. I'm not privy to know it, and I'm not going to start second guessing or imagine or attributing bad things to this demon must have done mm -hmm. it, that kind of thing i can remember um when we built the new building of the the one church i serve and um early on there was somebody who meant absolutely well who was pious and devout and cared very much but clearly came from a tradition that was much more interested in that kind of language and said i want to walk around the building and pray to protect it from evil spirits and like clearly this is really important to him but I'm nervous about the kind of magical thinking of, ah, we walked around and prayed, therefore the church will never get broken into or nobody will. And like, it was almost in that kind of yeah. language. If we pray, that'll protect it like it's a shield. Or maybe you saw the news story lately where after the wildfires in Hawaii, there was a place where one church was preserved and didn't have fire damage. And I saw people who meant, well, respectable religious people saying, mm -hmm. isn't this a good sign? God saved our church. And to me, that feels like, whoa, 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 whoa. If anything, Christians should be like, we should be willing to risk our buildings so that others don't get burned down. You know, like, um, yeah. I, I'm, I think God is way less interested in our buildings and spires and things like that and more of human beings. And I'm not really sure I'm interested or I believe in a God who saves church buildings and lets people die. Um, so I, to me, that gets real, real complicated real quick. Mm -hmm. And I'm so so wary of that kind of abuse and magical thinking that i'm that's not where i'm at um but for me on the flip side part of our baptismal liturgy includes asking either the person being baptized or if they're uh their infants uh, their parents do you renounce the devil and all the devil's empty promises and the forces that defy yeah. god and to me it feels like i don't i don't have to cross my fingers when i'm asking or answering those questions but i also tell families when we get ready for that this is the easiest it will ever be because usually evil is not that obvious. And, you know, most of the time it doesn't mm -hmm. appear knocking on the door going, hi, I'm the devil. I'm here to mess with you. So, yeah, take a slow pitch over the plate when you can get one. And if evil shows up at your door in a personified way saying, hi, I'm Satan, will you do what I want? Say no. But most of the time it's a lot more like you're describing, Sarah. It's subtle and enmeshed in our daily lives and impersonal. And it's you know, people living through occupied Nazi Germany going, well, if I just go along, it'll be easier for me. Or if I just, you know, maybe maybe those Jewish neighbors were troublemakers after all. Like it's it's imperceptible and doesn't present itself as as evil. And I guess I think that's part of the insidiousness of it that makes it feel more personal to me, that it feels like I have to treat evil as being at least as clever as I am. And I think maybe that's it for me. Why I hold on to some sense of that personified sense that if, if evil is all reducible, just to bad habits or um, uh, brain chemistry, I can outsmart it. And I'm mm -hmm. not convinced that I'm smart enough to outsmart evil on my own. It requires uh, something beyond myself as well. Because um, again, like it is that line from from uh, the, the usual suspects, the devil's greatest trick is convincing the world he didn't exist. It, I got to figure evil is at least as smart as I am. And that's what I'd do if I were the evil one, I'd convince the world I didn't exist. Bottom line in all this though, for people who are used to Lucifer as a character is the same as the devil is the same as Satan. It sounds like, no, that we've kind of conflated those together. 
And our bottom line, if I'm hearing it, Satan is a figure in the Old Testament accuser and is always on God's leash. The devil in the New Testament is seen in more of that adversarial role, but um, the New Testament has a more systemic way of talking about evil also. And God's always guaranteed the victory, even in the New Testament. It's never that they're co-equal powers. And lumping them together as a character named Lucifer who wanted to rule in heaven and instead settled to ruling in hell. That's made up. That's John Milton, Paradise Lost, borrowing from a lot of mythologies, but that's not drawn from the Bible. Is that a fair summary? Yeah. Well, then, uh, mm-hmm. if you found this enlightening or perplexing, we invite you for more conversations uh, on the Mandela effect in the Bible and characters we could have sworn were there and aren't next time here in Crazy Face Talk. See you. Bye. Bye. This is-